Gracious God, speak into me and into these words you prepared and these things about Thomas that we might be able to learn from him and from you what it truly means to believe in me. Lord, help us to live a life after the day of Easter, in the season of Easter, that speaks about resurrection. And whatever it is that needs to be resurrected in us, Lord, let it be listening now in these moments. In Jesus Christ's name we pray and ask. The people of God said together, Amen. I wanted to mention the fact of, as you look at the version event, but also these flowers on here, if you're wondering who those are for, they're for Bill Griffith in memory of him. He would have been 87. Uh, so we remember Bill, one of our longtime saints who passed away, and Harriet, his surviving spouse. And uh, just, if you see her today, smile at her, give her a hug, and let her know that you care. The most famous doubter of all time is Thomas. Through history, Judas has been the only disciple criticized more than Thomas. Tradition has given him a new name, Doubting Thomas. Even the dictionary, and when you Google, you see this, Doubting Thomas, as a noun. And it says, a person who is skeptical and refuses to believe something without proof. It's an actual noun. See, Thomas wanted proof that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But can you blame him? When the resurrected Christ appeared to some of his disciples, Thomas wasn't there. Can you imagine seeing someone die, knowing he was buried, and then hearing from friends they had seen him alive? I see dead people. Makes for a great movie, perhaps. But if someone said that to you, you'd probably be like, I think something's wrong with you. And you might feel sympathetic towards them, expecting them to get over it over time. They just can't deal with it. You know, grief has different levels of, of anger and denial. But they keep telling you on and on and on. You might feel a need to confront them. That was the situation for Thomas. He needed to straighten them out to make sure they understood they were in denial. In recent years, many Christians have become more sympathetic to Thomas. They recognize that if they had been in the same position, they may have had the same doubts. In this position, I'm sure that I would have had the same doubts as Thomas, especially who I am. I would have been a doubter. My nickname might have become Doubting Jeremy just because I doubted what had happened. Because I wanted proof. And it begs the question about what we believe in and how we believe. I mean, ask the question, what event or series of events made you a believer? Think about the things that made you a believer or the event. How did you come to believe in Jesus? 
What happened to you? When was that moment or moments? How can you connect to those moments, difficult times of unbelief? Because you believe, Lord, help my unbelief. They go together in the same breath. But one of the events I think that made Thomas even a stronger believer was the fact that he missed the first appearance. It was the best thing that could have happened to him. In the long run, was that he missed the first appearance of Jesus. You ever miss something that was really important or something like, oh my gosh, you should have been there for that. You should have seen that. I can't believe you missed it. And you're like going, oh, right? This is Thomas's kind of moment. It says in verse 19, and we start in chapter 20, and if you follow along in the app or in your Bible or on the screen, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Now it's important to remember when we talk about anything that mentions the Jews, that all the disciples were Jews, just like Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. And while the disciples were afraid, this was not a matter of fearing all Jewish people because they were wicked or evil. I say that even clearer today because once again we've had a synagogue shooting. That somehow the Jewish people are the enemy of others. Disciples didn't fear their Jewish friends and the people around them. They feared the Jewish and Roman authorities who had conspired to crucify Jesus. Remember, the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. The authorities crucified Jesus. And they feared those authorities because they feared what they would do if they found out where they're at. They could be next. Why would anybody think they wouldn't come after them next and wipe them out the same way they'd wiped Jesus out? We got him, now we're coming for you. We forget that part, that somehow that once it's over with and he's resurrected, that all of a sudden, because we receive freedom and new life, that somehow they did. They are still in their tomb. They are hiding away. They have no idea what's going on. And when you're afraid in life, what do you need? When you're afraid of something in life, what, what helps the most? It's peace. For someone to tell you it's going to be all right. To tell you that things are going to be okay. So Jesus came and stood among them and said, the first thing he said is, peace be with you. Because he knows how scared they are and what's going on with them. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them again, I guess because he wasn't sure they got it the first time. Sometimes we don't get it either when Jesus tells us to have peace and then we still are anxious and we still go back to the same place. He says to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Thomas missed all of this. You should have been there, Thomas. It was amazing. So in our new sermon series, Living, over the next month we're still talking about what happens after Easter. Because Easter is more than just a day. Easter is actually a 50-day season that marks the new beginning for all of us and the ways for us to live into our resurrection reality. Just as Jesus' disciples had to do. They had to figure out how to live as resurrection people after the resurrection. Their journey is just starting. And so how do believing and following and listening cross together to form a way for fully devoted followers where resurrection is a daily reality? Where we're constantly being resurrected? And this week we're asking the question, so what does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe in me. First, we believe the presence of Jesus is the presence of peace. Jesus arrives among a group of people, disciples who are scared for their lives. They have every right to be scared. They have no idea what's going to happen. They saw their leader crucified. They're concerned they might be next. Perfectly understandable for them to feel scared and anxious and nervous. Anything but peaceful. But then Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. It's more than just a greeting. With Jesus comes peace. Amen? With Jesus comes true peace. I imagine the disciples felt better once they saw that what was before them was not a ghost. That's why they had to touch him nor a figment of their imagination. Can you imagine seeing Jesus walk into the room and walk through the door? Now we're going, wait, wait a minute. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is it just me? Before them was Jesus, and to be in the presence of Jesus is to experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. One of the things when, when I go and, and speak with somebody and pray with them before surgery or, or during a hospital visit or whatever else is that I try to always make sure that somewhere within what do I say has something to say about the peace that surpasses all understanding. Because when you're in that situation, when you're in a, in a trial and you're anxious and fearful and not sure what's going to happen, the one thing you need to hear the most is that Jesus brings a peace that surpasses everything else that could happen in our lives. It's a peace to know that whether you're healed in this world or healed in the world to come, healing will take place. Sometimes it doesn't happen the way we want it to. But there's a peace that He's always with us and always present in that. And that's the kind of peace that they, that they heard. What else does it mean that we believe? Well, second, we believe the peace of Jesus brings power and responsibility. 
After greeting them and bringing them peace to comfort them, to bring them into line, to help them to figure it all out, Jesus breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. And then immediately, once he'd given them the Holy Spirit, he gave them a task, a mission, immediately. You see, God's peace does not mean a lack of fear or anxiousness. It doesn't mean all that just goes away. Those things usually plague us. But having received the proof, their leader was still with them, and then indeed they served a risen living Savior. They were instructed about how their lives were going to change. Now that you've seen me and received this gift, now you're going to go out and we're going to change the world like I talked about in the first place. Remember when I said you will come and become fishers of people. You'll become my disciples. It wasn't just during those three years. It was beyond that that he was talking about. They were to live as sent people. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, they were sent into the world to reconcile the world to God and to forgive. And so now that we have the peace of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, we become believers, what are we called to do? To go out and to change the world. To not sit back in the upper room and go, wow, that was really nice. That was amazing for me. We're called on a mission. What are we being called to do individually and as a church and as the greater church? How is this mission to be lived out? The disciples could have sat around and just received the Holy Spirit and then said, well, that's awesome. Now let's sit here and have dinner and we'll just hang out and we'll go about our daily business. And all of that leads to the story of Thomas and belief. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I guess Thomas had had enough of the disciples. You know, he's often given a bad rep for not believing what the other disciples had told him, but it's perfectly reasonable not to believe that a dead man has risen from the dead. That's perfectly, even in Jesus' time, perfectly understandable. Even though he did see Lazarus raised from the dead, even though Jesus told them he'd be raised from the dead, but as we learned like a couple weeks ago, the disciples still didn't get it, or even last week, Peter and the unnamed beloved disciple didn't understand what they had seen at the empty tomb. But to believe in something also presents a certain vulnerability that has to happen. Because in order to believe in something, you have to give up something. When we believe that a deepest desire is true, it opens us up to a happiness that we take it away if it's not true. Some folks will say, oh, I'm not gonna, I, don't, I don't believe in God. I don't want to find out God doesn't exist. I don't want to be duped. We're afraid of that. If we believe in something too much, that it'll let us down. 
that we'll find out the answer and have to deal with the fact is that we believed in something that wasn't true. You ever believed in something that wasn't true? And you had this high belief, and then you found out that it wasn't true, and how did you feel? Maybe when you were a kid, some things changed for you when you got to a certain age, and your world collapsed around that. I can't believe in anything. This is not true. What else isn't true? One of my parents told me it's not true either. You mean I can go swimming 30 minutes after I eat? Yes, you can. It's not true. Go look up all the things. Another untruth is don't let your cell phone go down to 5%. You don't have to wait till it goes to zero to charge it. Charge it at 80 or 90. That's what you're supposed to do nowadays. The old batteries have been gone for about 10 years. Charge your phone. Don't let it go down. The longer it goes down, the worse it'll be. It burns the battery up. There are all kinds of things out there that we believe and think about. When we find out they're not true, we're like going, you know, like the ketchup cup thing that came out last year. Was that last year? Those little ketchup cups, you know, look like this. They're made to be pulled out to hold your ketchup. They have, that's why there's ridges are in them, so you can be able to make a little dish out of it. And then people post on Facebook, they go, mind blown, what is it, today I, today I was zero days old or whatever days old when I found out about this? Don't watch the shoe, the, how to tie your shoelaces, really, anything like that. That'll blow your mind. We believe all kinds of things that aren't necessarily true. We just believe them because that's what we think. But when you find out, it's a whole different story. So it's understandable he wants proof. He's going to believe in this and stake his life on it. He wants to have proof. And maybe there is something that you didn't catch in this story that caught me. It says that Jesus, the first time he came, showed them his hands and his side. The disciples who first saw him didn't just get by on just looking at him. They also needed proof and he knew that he knew they needed proof so he went ahead and showed them exactly what they needed to see so they were no more faithful than thomas was it just happened that thomas was honest about where his heart was and was remembered for that through all eternity you see because exposing exposing our hearts can get us in trouble sometimes when we say things you can't really go back on I know what that feels like. You know, it's, it's hard sometimes to be able to speak from your heart because you have no idea what your heart's going to say. We know very well here that if I go off of something that I've written down, there's no telling what I might say, and so very often I don't go off of what I've written down. A couple of weeks ago, we, we mentioned the reappointment and the excitement of that, and, and, you know, I think some folks got the feeling that somehow I wasn't excited. I was trying to hold it in, and Jerry's announcement was very written, much like I'm leaving, and everybody's like going, I'm not sure what's going on, what's happening. I'm not making any facial movements because I'm just trying to, I don't think it's my job to give it away until he says something, and so I'm just trying to be just like this, and then I've never been someplace for seven years, and I'm excited for that. But at the same time, I'm like, Thomas, I'm like, it's hard to believe. I don't know how to feel about it. And sometimes people interpret that as being, well, maybe you're not excited about being here. I am. But it's also new territory. And so it's just a matter of, of when you expose your heart, 
People will hear your heart differently no matter who they are and how much they know your heart. If you don't know my heart, you'll think things about me that are not true. If you know my heart, then you know who I am. It's the same for you. And Thomas's heart was just being who he was. But this is the sad and tragic part here. That it's because Thomas robbed himself of a week of joy. If you listen to his friends, who he trusted, who he loved, who told him, all told him, not just one, but all told him that Jesus had appeared, he would have had a week of joy. Instead, can you imagine what the week was like for Thomas as he went through his life and he missed the party and he had no idea and thought that Jesus was still dead? Remember, he didn't know about the resurrection or anything, but he, beha- he, be- he, be- he refused to believe in the testimony of his friends. That was Thomas's downfall. But Jesus didn't hold it against Thomas. I mean, think about this. Jesus could have done a lot of things like, I'm not going to show up again. That was it. I, I came once. Look, you just tell everybody I came. They don't believe. That's on them. No. Instead, Jesus gave Thomas what he needed, the, what he needed so he could believe. He actually came back for a second time for Thomas. Just for Thomas. A week later... An actual week later, they're all, you know, a whole week they've been going through this. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. And this time, Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said once again, what? Peace be with you. So probably for all of them, because they probably were still pretty anxious. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you after what you've said? And reach out your hand and put it in my side. Go ahead. Stick it inside there so you can be able to see what you need to see to be able to believe. Imagine Jesus doing this for you in your unbelief. Do not doubt, but believe. You see, Jesus gives makeup tests. You ever missed a test, a really important test, and all of a sudden you had to you figure out how you're going to take this test, and you're like going, oh my gosh, and your incomplete missing grade shows up, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to get this test made up. Jesus gives makeup tests. Thomas had missed the first test. See, we don't miss out because we don't believe when others believe. It isn't like if, if you, know, you believe and I believe different times that somehow we miss out or somehow Jesus only comes once to us to help us believe. Oh, you missed out that time. You were in your 20s. You weren't listening. Guess what? You don't get another chance ever. It doesn't work that way. You see, this text tells us that Jesus meets us where we are. Amen? That Jesus also spoke to Thomas in a way that did not focus on his doubt. Jesus didn't come in and say, you know what? Now that Thomas is here, maybe I can show you exactly who I am. Thank you for showing up tonight, Thomas. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't focus on or berate Thomas or tell them, oh my gosh, Thomas, you have little belief. Here, you need to see what you need to say. He doesn't do any of that. He simply comes to him in a way in which he's able to show him. 
that what is more important is the belief. And Thomas believed. And this belief then moves him to make what we talked about on Monday, Thursday during the telling of the disciples is probably the strongest confession of the disciples, maybe the Bible. And speaking of Monday, Thursday and Station of the Cross and everything else, thanks to Barbara and her team for everything for the whole Holy Week. We didn't talk about an Easter, but next year, look for something totally different. We're going to be focusing on Stations of Holy Week. What happened on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before you ever got to Thursday? But during that time, he gives one of the most, the strongest confessions of the Bible. And it's just so simple, though. It's just like it goes right over us. I know it does. And, and even when I say it, it goes, you know, this is the strongest confession in the Bible. Listen to it. Here it goes. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's the strongest confession in the Bible. Didn't feel very strong, though, Lester. It's like something you'd say every day, you know, my Lord and my God. Exclamation points, though, like the praise team. There you go, exclamation point. So he's not just saying, my Lord and my God. Devotional writer Selwyn Hughes wrote, Those who doubt most and yet strive to overcome their doubts turn out to be some of Christ's strongest disciples. The doubters often become the ones who are the strongest because they question and they doubt. Thomas was transformed, saying, My Lord and my God. This does not hit us as powerfully as it would have hit the original disciples. But before that day, they called Jesus rabbi, meaning teacher. They called him Christ, meaning the anointed one. They called him the son of the living God. But no one before Thomas had ever called Jesus my God. My Lord and my God. They had used the title, but no one had ever said it personally for them, not even Peter. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. He didn't say, You are my God. Thomas does. And the Jewish leaders would not have hesitated to pass the death sentence on Thomas for blasphemy if they had heard those words. It was an incredible and dangerous thing to say. To say, my Lord and my God, is recognized the divinity of Christ and recognized that Jesus is one with God. And that was against everything that the Jewish authorities would have wanted to hear and believe. And Thomas's belief in that moment moved him to make a powerful confession of who Jesus is. How is your experience like or unlike Thomas's experience. How do you say, my Lord and my God? How powerful is it in your life? I mean, how do you believe in God? I mean, that's the question for all of us. How do you believe in God? When you say, I believe in God, what does that mean? How do you believe in God? And what helps you in times of unbelief and uncertainty? when we don't believe or when we struggle to believe, what helps you in your belief to get through that? And then it's Thomas's confession that leads to what it means to living in our belief. Because then Jesus said to him, once this is all set up, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. 
So it begs the question, how do we see Jesus today? How do we see Jesus today? We've never seen him physically. I've never seen the human historical Jesus. I think most of us, if not all of us, have had the same experience. We haven't really even seen pictures because none of the pictures are pictures. Because they, there were no cameras. There is no art of Jesus from that day and time. Everything we've seen about Jesus, you've pictured in your mind, everything you've ever seen is somebody else's perception of who Jesus was. Every blonde-haired, blue-eyed picture that ever happened, that definitely is not Jesus. Some of the Middle Eastern portrayals, yes. Maybe close. Maybe similar. But you've never seen Jesus. Only images of him. But it doesn't mean that my belief hasn't been helped by seeing and believing. Because what you do is that you see Jesus in others. You see it in the way that they act. You see it in the way that they help. You see that in people that you've looked at and gone, I see Jesus in you. I see him working. I, I see him living. I, I see his presence in what you do. And, and you have those moments when you do things like, I'm sure like a kids serve and things like that, when you, when you just see Jesus amongst everything that's going on. When we're at Feed the Need and, and we serve all those people and there's so many folks running around and they're here and there and they're everywhere and the people coming from the community, people are talking, people are crying over here and they're praying over here. Then I look at that and I go, I think this is what the kingdom of God is like. Working and living together and serving Christ and it makes me smile. Because it's a glimpse that's what we have. We see folks and their testimony and their words and their actions over time and we see and we believe because of others. Maybe it's family, friends, mentors, pastors, children who teach us. Youth willing to do 30-hour famine when, and go into fast for 30 hours when I would... I would make a pretty bold statement off script that probably most adults have not fasted for 30 hours. And yet, Jesus said, this is a spiritual practice that I do. Why don't you do it? We see him in other Christian believers and other people. We see others serving and living for Christ. And that helps me believe in historical Jesus that I've not seen. Because I see his effect throughout all the centuries and millennial of people who were touched and changed. And you can feel it and you can hear it and you know it in their words and in their actions. And you go, this is why I believe. I believe this is why it wasn't just a hoax. It wasn't just something that just happened and the Roman soldiers carried him off. I believe because it's gone and gone and gone and gone and people after people and the testimonies and the life changes and all these things that happen. But we do see Jesus in other ways besides seeing him physically. 
May we be blessed because we believe, though we do not see. That's what Jesus wants from us. To believe even though we do not see. And then it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen? And that's how John ends. There are many other things that he did that are not in this book. And the Bible says that the one who had been most honest about his doubts was the first to call Jesus God. And there are traditions that we learned about that say Thomas was the disciple who traveled furthest to tell others about Christ. Tradition teaches that he proclaimed the gospel in Babylon and Persia and all the way to India. And you will see the effects of Thomas, the disciple, in India today. There are Christian churches in southern India that claim to trace their heritage all the way back to Thomas. And when you think about that, in what ways can you live your life as proof to others that Christ is alive? The disciples had a challenge. They were told to go and to be sent and to live out this mission, but they weren't told how to go and do it. But they had to leave the place they were in order to go to the place they needed to go. And the same question is for us. In what ways can you live your life as proof to others that Christ is alive? Your words? Your actions? Community? That really is the question after Easter and don't stop believing. Is once you don't stop believing, you listen to the song, I'm sure, when you got home after Easter and heard the whole song again, is after you don't stop believing, what do you believe in? And how do you live out that belief? It's after so what? It's now what? How does our relationship with the risen Christ give us joy and peace, that gives us joy and peace, but also challenges us to be sent as witnesses to Jesus to others? We are coming to a day and age where Christians are becoming more and more less likely to ever share anything about Jesus with anybody else for fear of offending anybody. 56% of those under the age of 30 will not share their faith. I don't mean browbeating somebody. I don't mean having to go to their door. I mean just being able to share the risen Christ who's active in your life with someone else. Because if you're not doing that, then we're not listening to the mission of what Jesus said to do. There are plenty of ways to share our faith and people know that faith is a part of our life more than showing up on church on Sunday. Because your car left the driveway doesn't mean to anybody that somehow you've gone to church. When do you talk about it? When do you share it? When someone comes alongside of you and needs help, how are you using your faith to be able to share with them? Well, I googled and I found all these answers. But how often do you ever share the fact is that when I get in tough situations in my life, when, when I'm feeling that place, and I pray. Oh, you're a believer? Yeah, I am. I believe in Jesus. 
Why? Can you even ask, answer that question? If someone was to, was to keep you right there and be able to have a conversation for longer than a couple of minutes, could you be able to even defend what you believe or explain what you believe? And yet that's how the whole thing started. And the more and more we don't share our faith, the whole thing will stop with us. Oh, there will still be people who come and come into the faith because Jesus will bring them in that way, but it won't be because we're going out and doing that. People always talk to me about heydays of churches and how you know we had lots of people coming in all the time and they were all there. Well, there's two kind of reasons for that. Number one, society kind of made it so that church is a thing you did in the 50s. So that's overinflated, those numbers in the first place. But the other piece of that is, over time, is, is that more and more people never had any kind of impact by anybody else about faith. And so now more and more people are going through a whole generation and another generation without ever even really even hearing about Jesus in their life. Or the possibility of that. And why is that? Because folks who come to church and the communities don't share anymore. It's not important. People will find it on their own. We'll put a sign out front. We'll get an electric sign. This is always my favorite one. We'll get an electric sign. And because we have an electric sign, more people will come to church. That is a fallacy. The only way more folks will come to church besides them seeking it out themselves is because you're sharing with people around you about your community of faith. If you're not sharing about it, then there won't be anybody else who hears about it. You're like, well, that person goes over here and does all that and everything else. Unless you know all your neighbors and unless you know everybody you work with and unless you know everybody at school, unless you know exactly where they go to church or don't go to church or don't want to go to church, whatever else, and you really don't know what somebody's looking for and searching for. So we rely on letting somebody come and have to search it out themselves. And yet Jesus says to us, that's not the deal. The deal is to go out. You are called and sent to go and share that good news gospel that someone needs to hear. When folks are struggling in their life, the best place to be is in community. If you ever watched on uh, CBS all of these stories that Steve Hartman does. Steve Hartman is a correspondent on CBS News who has these stories of incredible, life-changing experiences and people from across the country, and you can't help but not tear up about those things. And the amazing thing is that most of them, I remember the one that was in Florida where there were students and there were kids who ate lunch by themselves, alone, ostracized, not included, and this student and a few others became part of this squad that basically went and gathered around students who were alone and included them. Or the woman who, who gave out meals out of the back of her car. We, I think we showed that video and, and talked about that. And, and, and she gave all the glory and honor to Jesus. And she was poor and, and, and the car was barely hanging together and she did it because of her love for Christ. Those are stories of belief. How are we living out belief? His body broken for us. 
given in love for us. His blood poured out for us. And for all the world. Not just in here. If this story only resides at this table and only resides in us, how do we keep Christ alive? Where is the resurrection for the world that lives in death, that lives in stone tombs? It has to come from us one thing at a time. No one big event's going to bring everybody in and all of a sudden you have a huge event and you've attracted everybody and all of a sudden they're here, so we'll have that big, that big thing. It happens on a day-to-day basis individually, the same way that he speaks to us. He comes to us in our disbelief, in our belief, and says, I will show you what you need in order to believe, and that I need you to go and change the world. Let us pray. Gracious God, may this bread and this juice be reminders of us of the great love that Jesus gave for us. May they inspire us and spark us to also want to go out and share that love that everyone has a place at the table, that they matter, they are not forgotten. Speak that into our hearts so we can speak it into other hearts as well. Pour your Holy Spirit on this bread and this juice now. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we are redeemed by Jesus. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Invite those coming forward to serve to come forward. And as they come forward to serve, to think about what do you believe? How do you live that belief out? What is Jesus calling me to do?